Welcome, everybody, to episode 93 of the Dogcast. Today, I have with me Gene Sticko, uh, presidential candidate. Gene, say hello. Thank you. Hello. Good to be here. Appreciate you um, having me. Oh, of course. This is uh, going to be a pleasure for me. I'm really excited to have you on. Um, I just first would like you to just introduce yourself to everybody, let everyone know why it is you're on here. Yeah, so uh, my name is Gene Sticko. I'm uh, 50 years old, grew up in, in Somerville, Mass., uh, left at 18 to sort of embark and take on the world between the military and then a uh, where I did about 10 years, a little short of 10 years, um, and then went into corporate world, government contracting, uh, just a, a amazing opportunities that, that brought me literally everywhere. You know, I, I often say I spent more of my adult life living outside of the United States and uh, 2018 life and, and my my uh, new wife, we decided to to come back to the U.S. And uh, we settled in Malden, where I have longtime connections. I'm a graduate of Malden Catholic High School. And uh, I actually retired in, in 2017. So at, at about 45, I retired um, and got into actually producing opera. Uh, and now we've stood up an opera company here and in the midst of doing all that and sort of looking at the world and um, just feeling that something something needed to happen, I decided I was going to put my message out there and, and campaign as an independent candidate for president in uh, 2024. And, and here we are. Yeah, that's a, it's a fascinating, I guess, story and just like beginning to just like kind of say, all right, well. I guess it's just I got to run here. Like when you're looking at the field and just seeing you don't see someone that you feel like you 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 want to vote for, maybe you're the guy. Um, so I guess my first question for you, um, I, I, I have heard your answers on other podcasts, but for my viewers, what made you want to run for president? I think looking particularly, you know, over the past six to eight years. And and the the level of of discourse and and the, the 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 I mean the chasms of of difference in how we have political discourse now in this country, um, again is just shameful. You know, mm -hmm. I'm I'm a patriot. I believe in this country. I've and and like I said, I've been everywhere. I've been everywhere. Um, you know, I've been to countries with dictatorships. I've lived in socialist countries. You know, I've I've lived under, you know, universal medicine. Um, you know, I've seen and experienced a lot of what the world has to offer. And at the end of the day, you know, there really is no greater country on this planet than the United States of America. Before all that being said, we're 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 a hot mess right now in a in a lot of ways. And going back to 2016, 2020, and all the rest of it, what I always my view of the world was this that we, we have this sort of generational gap that's happening right now. We've got the baby boomers for whom the world is moving too fast and too radically and all the rest. And we've got your Gen Zs, millennials, you know, and the rest who grew up with with instant gratification, who grew up with insta change, you know, um, press a button and something, you know, something's different. 
and and there's a and that's great and there's a, a balance in there to be had that says we we need to be progressive thinking and we need to take bold progressive actions but you can't move a large institution you can't move a large a country um it doesn't happen fast um and when you when you make abrupt overly emotional decisions in your own life and particularly when you make them when it comes to governing there are unintended consequences and what i always said was we needed somebody who could come to the table and 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 explain all of that and not only explain it but do it in a way that you know is 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 both compassionate and and you know respectful of everybody's opinions and feelings and 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 all of that um and and sometimes you know we've 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 got to get over this idea that you know i i like to say don't always believe everything you think right mm that we need to get back to challenging ourselves. We need to get back to thinking of unintended consequences. We need to get back to critically thinking about the issues and everything that's involved in it. And and that's why I said I, I look at the rhetoric, the narratives, the 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 polarizations and 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 all the rest of it. And and I'm always generally been somebody who's been known as being realistic and reasonable. Um, you know, and I've said it on other, you know, podcasts yeah. too. I said, unfortunately, that doesn't make any headlines. Nobody's going to say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, Gene, you know, presidential candidate Gene Sticko said something very reasonable that made a lot of sense today, right? Yeah. Nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going for that. Um, but this is why I like doing these kind of forums because for for whatever happens, having the opportunity to sort of get out and and speak directly and informally and 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 from the heart um to voters to to not only say give me a shot um give me your vote let me earn your vote for you from you um if nothing else then then maybe we all begin to think about what we're being fed differently and and that's a big part of what i hope to do uh i was gonna say um i guess addressing the elephant in the room about your uh, candidacy is like the odds of you winning are small, you know, and I, I don't mean to date. I'm not trying to disparage you or like, cause again, I love what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I just feel like what is your mindset going in? Is your mindset to, Oh, I want to be the president. I want to win. Or is it more, almost more so, or maybe 50, 50 in I want to send out a message of like, there's other people, there's other perspectives. There's not just two sides screaming at each other. Well, you raise a couple of good points there. You know, what are my odds, right? My odds are 50, 50. I'm either going to win or I'm not going to win. I like that. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. if, and, and, and that's probably message number one, you can take whatever statistic you want and you can boil it down to whatever serves you best. Right. I have a 50-50 chance of winning. 100% of the people I speak with say they're going to vote for me. Now, I don't have to tell you if that's 10 people, 5 people, 2 people, you know, just me, 
or whatever, but 100% of the people I get in front of, and they say, you know, I've got, I've got their vote. Um, you know, what it comes down to for me is a fundamental belief in things. So if I'm going to sit here and I'm going to say that I believe in the constitution and I believe in that structure, um, then I have to believe I have as good of a shot as anybody else. Because the only qualifications in there are, you know, natural born citizen and 35 years of age. Doesn't say I have to be a lawyer, doesn't say I have to be a career politician. And, you know, when people have asked that, well, why don't you, you know, go for mayor, city council, you know, you know, start at the school board, work your way up and all the rest. Of it. I don't have an interest in being a career politician, right? Where I see the problem right now is is in the White House, and that's where the problem has been for 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 decades in a lot of ways. Um, we have come to you know as a body politica, so to speak, the American voter. You know, we 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 know there's political theater. We hate political theater, yet we continue to demand the political theater. And then we, you know, get ourselves all right, you know, riled up and in, involved in it as well. So we have a lot of choices to make as far as do we want to continue on this theatrical path of running our country that we all frankly know is a lot of bullshit? Um, or do we actually want somebody that would be able to come in? and give a new focus and direction to what we do politically um, and begin to set the stage for the future. You know, I don't think you can trust an existing career politician to come in and do that. And I think sending the message by electing somebody who's unheard of, but who seems to have the plan and the, you know, the, the, the wherewithal to take us on a new path would send a very strong message to, you know, career politicians. So we talk about, we don't want politics as usual, then let's send that message. Um, you know, when you talk about the odds, when you talk about the, the, the process, yeah, there is, there is a lot embedded in the system um, that is designed to prevent somebody like me from actually making it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's pre-built in there in a number of ways, but there's also still flexibility enough that it could actually happen. It could actually be done um, if enough people decide I'm either voting for the independent candidate or I'm going to go ahead and, and exercise my right to write in a candidate. Um, and, and those are essentially, you know, the two options you, you have when it comes to me. Um to get your, you know, to get your voice heard and, and make an actual real impactful change. So I guess an important part of this whole thing is just to get into a lot of the issues. But I first was trying to think of when I was first putting together my prep sheet for this, how am I going to structure this podcast? Like, how am I going to really like attack all these fronts? And my first thought was obviously like my audience, like who's actually watching and I guess the people watching are people my age, people between the ages of 18, 24, uh, predominantly male, but there's definitely like probably 30% viewers of female, which not that bad, honestly. Um, so a good glance at like the youth in 
in uh, the, I guess this demographic, this uh, yeah. geographic location as well. Um, so I guess just talking about some of uh, of what you quoted as like the the hot button issues for um to to start. So I think I'm gonna pull up your website and we yeah. can scroll through that. Hold on, let me just make sure I I have it in in our emails together. So I'm just gonna try yeah. to find that really fast. I'm probably also gonna edit this so it just <laughs> takes me out. Um. Let's see. Here it is. Uh, boom. And then I can even share the screen right now. I don't. Where is the share my screen? Share screen. Oh, here we go. Boom. Share. All right. So you're seeing what I'm seeing right now? Yes, there I am. There you are. Glory. Yeah, so let's just go straight to the, I guess, the hot button issues. These are the, obviously, the biggest things surrounding our country right now. Um, I guess we'll just quickly run through them, and then we'll go to the ones that I think were mostly impacting people my age. Um, So I'm just going to say, I'm going to say what it is, and then if you want to read this, you can, but if you want to just say your quick stance on it, then we can do that as well. Um, Yeah. I mean, even even beyond that, you know, if I can, I think, yeah. you know, when you talk about hot button, these are, you know, these are always the hot button issues. Right. These are always, you know, what we talk about every four years and what we get divided and what we get all upset about and and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, while, you know, every individual issue is important, um, I think we have to fundamentally start with you know, my approach, you know, to, to, to all issues and, and, and the basis when it comes to everything for um, public policy. And that is doing and taking a position and making decisions that are in the best interest collectively of the people of the United States. Right. And that's right. the power of not having a party affiliation, right? I'm not pushing a party agenda and I'm not pushing ideas and in, in policies and programs that are only geared to get me and or the other members of my party to the next election. And that's exactly the problem with these issues. And it's exactly the problem as to why nothing ever gets done. Because there is no benefit to a career politician to actually solve any of these issues. There is no benefit um, to that body um, to to come in and and tackle them in a, they can try tackling them out alphabetical order. They can they have a million ways that they can do it. And if you again look at the system and and look at what's done with a a critical eye and and an eye towards, always ask that question, what's the motivation? Why are we talking about this issue right now? Right? We're talking about it. Are we talking about it because it's a headline or we're talking about it because in X number of states, there are X number of elections that are coming up and these are going to be the issues in that election. You know, and we're sitting here in Massachusetts and we're hearing 
you know, all of these things that are now national priorities. And we're like, well, how did that become a national priority? Well, it's because there's some, you know, off-term election going on somewhere in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. uh, and now that's what they want to, to, to be, to be the issue. Um, right. So, you know, as, as I formulated, again, my very, I think, and tried to be very straightforward um, and, and very much at a high level, um, what's a position, you know, it, it, it comes from that background that, that the federal government needs to get back into the business, if they were ever in the business of it in the first place, of truly serving the American people in the interests of the American people, irregardless of, of party or, you know, what time of election cycles it, it is. Right. So what I did uh, as as you were talking, as we were just explaining, like how important it is to really be attacking these issues as a side, as a as opposed to just taking a side just to say, oh, I am this or I am this. Um, I also just scrolled through some of these as well. Um, so if someone's wa if you're watching on the YouTube, you can you can stop, you can pause and look at them just to keep us from having to go into ones that we won't really be touching in this podcast. And then um, from here, I'm also going to stop sharing as well. And I'm just going to ask you some questions, I guess, um, about the issues that I feel directly impact people my age. So then I can best uh, speak with you on it, because I feel like especially for something like, uh, I guess, Native American issues, me, I have no place in speaking about that. I don't know enough, but a place like maybe abortion is something that I guess we could talk about to start um, first your stance and then we'll go. Well, as I said right there, it's. Uh... That's a decision between a, a, a medical provider and their patient. Mm. You, you know, bottom line, I don't think government has any role in individual medical decisions between a doctor and their patient. Okay. I mean, um, you know, that that's my position as a politician, right? Because that's right. going to be the, the, the job I'm in. Personally, you know... I've never been in that situation. I, I've, I've, you know, have had friends and family. It's a, you know, it's a horrible decision um, to have to go through. And and I think the idea of of it being, you know, political and 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 just on both sides, on both sides, the 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 sheer foolishness, you know, of what's of 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 the discussion. Um, because, you know, I, I, you know, you see on the one side, the whole, and, you know, and I think part of it, so if we look at, you know, like the late term abortion laws and all the rest of it, right? So the the right is going to tell you, yeah, as that baby's coming out of, you know, a, a mother's womb, they're, you know, going to stick a screwdriver through its head and it's a fully formed baby. And, um, you know, and, and then on the left there, you know, there's extremists, you know, I saw one video, there's a woman walking around a little, again, some, some conservative religious group had put up little crosses for the numbers of abortions that were done, you know, and there's a, a left, you know, left wing, you know, woman running through, that's my abortion and that's my abortion. And that's, you know, very proudly. And, and again, it's so, it, 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 both sides it's just sort of morally corrupt you know number one to um be celebrate you know to be to be vilifying the people that that have to make that decision 
And I think it's equally morally corrupt to be celebrating the idea that um, you know, there, there, there is a loss of, of life there or to, to minimize it or, or whatever. I think, you know, we need to acknowledge, I think it's a tragedy all around. It's a tragedy for the, the woman and the family that need to go through that and, and make those decisions. Um, you know, I think again, even as a, even as a doctor, medical provider, I would imagine there are those who understand the, you know, the, the, the sanctity of of the you know the service that's that's being provided you know yeah. but that's you know that's the, that's me that's you know me as a person me as a politician says the government doesn't have a role in that decision yeah i, I noticed that with a lot of your um stances is it's up to the um individual or the or the individual with the medical person or like say with the gun control is also it's up to the, like it's not the government's place to do this do that so in what way does that take form does that take form do you mean like federally they do not have the place or do you mean um even on a state level it should be the individual's right because i feel like this is a this is something that i definitely wanted to talk to you about and i guess it's coming up earlier than i wanted it to yeah. but the idea of like federal versus state versus individual um, where do you feel like you're, you would be delegating these things to like, would you say, oh, I, would you make abortion legal federally and then let them decide from there? Or would you just leave it up to the States to decide? Well, and you know, I mean, and, and you raise a good point because it all comes down to the fundamental understanding of our, our system of, of laws and, and how these relationships are supposed to, uh, you know, we're structured and how they're supposed to work, right? There's actually supposed to be very f little federal law, right? The 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 United States, the, the federal government of the United States was primarily established to ensure consistency uh, in the application of, of the, the basic laws and, and rights that are afforded us by the constitution right that the states have agreed to you know when they signed on as the united states as we, as we signed on together um and then to collectively handle everything that's coming at us from outside foreign relations defense you know national defense and and those issues so i think a lot of ways the federal government has gotten into the weeds, so to speak, on a lot of issues that are um, the state's rights to decide. Now, when I speak in terms of the state, you know, I'm not speaking of the body politica, you know, in control. It's the people of the state, right? This is how it's supposed to work. The will of the people, the will of the people in that state dictates you know, who their elected officials are right up the line. And then collectively as a body of the United States, then we elect, you know, at the, the federal, you know, for federal representation. But even at that state level, you're still electing your federal representatives to go um, and sit in the house and sit in the Senate and, and all the rest of it. So then it comes down to, well, what's you know what becomes the role then of the federal government the federal government become the great you know the great equalizer 
amongst all things, or does the federal government begin to impose its will? And I think the role of the federal government should be to be the great equalizer, to look at all of these issues, you know, um, irrespective of of political standpoint, you know, which state, which governor. I'm going to pause for one second because I'm starting to. Yeah, I see. I see. We just had some technical difficulties. Um, You were on a roll, too. Uh, You were just talking, basically kind of getting like the the opus of like, I guess, the yes. relationship between them all. But if you can, if you remember where you were, continue. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, so that's the, that that becomes the sticking point. And this is where you find the, the, the influence of the federal government comes into, it comes into play. So, you know, we could take, for example, the drinking age, right? Yep. So when I was young, drinking age was 18. You know, before it was legal for, you know, legal for me to drink when I was nine, 10 years old, mm-hmm. it was 18, you know, then I went to, you know, then it was, okay, we need to make it 21. All right. So, you know, how does that happen? Well, a lot of the state, and, and I don't think we've seen a lot of this, you know, in recent history, maybe, you know, in your generation, I can't particularly think of, you know, a case where it happened, but this is, you know, this is how the power of the federal government has sort of come to be and become solidified, right? So a lot of states start saying, you know, we want the drinking age to be 21. We're going to change it to 21. And then they start saying, and it needs to be 21, you know, in all states, right? There's no mechanism, right? The federal government does not control what the drinking age is. That is not a function of the federal government, right? That's a function of state governments. So how do you convince all state governments to change the drinking age to, to 21, right? And why would somebody be against it? Why would some states be against it? Well, I'll give you an example. A lot of northern tier states you're, you know, that, that share their borders with Canada were against it because they said our border, te- where it's going to create more of a problem for us because the 18 year, you know, we change it to 21, the 18 to 20, you know, 20 year olds are going to drive over the border into Canada to go drinking and then be drinking, you know, what problem have we solved? All right. Unintended consequence. Mm-hmm. Oh, change it. to I can just go over the border, you know, and, and there's places on that northern border that don't have a an official crossing. You know, there's small towns and all the rest. And so now you've just increased the drinking and driving problem potentially, you know, for another location. But the power that the federal government has to wield is to say, well, as the federal government, we manage and maintain the federal highway system. Um, And so if you want part of the federal highway system coming through your state, or you want your funding for road improvements and signs and lighting and all of that, then the, you know, then the, the, the legal drinking age needs to be 21 doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with, um, you know, a direct correlation, but those are the ways. So when they say we're, we're, we are giving you federal money. And so if you want to receive this federal money, then you will do A, B, C, and D. And what A, B, C, and D become is dependent upon the party that is in power. So if this is the agenda that we want and we want it in all states, 
and you want the you know the collective federal money that comes from the states anyway let's be you know let's let's face it um you know if you want your due share of the money you just gave us uh coming back to you or you want this special project or you want whatever it is then you will you know bend bend to our will that's what needs to stop that's that sort of of influence and you know influence peddling and 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 all the rest of it i don't think the federal i don't think that's the role of the federal government okay so for an issue i guess back to the abortion thing um because you feel i mean you feel and you put here in, in the website that it is something between like the medical advisor and the patient themselves um if that does become like a state level act and it's not something that is encouraged by the federal government through like those types of tactics, which can be murky, um, then who's to say like, there's this, that there might be a state out there or maybe 30% of the people believe that they should like allow abortions legally. And um, then they kind of get overshadowed because their state is so, you know, let's just say right leaning, and then now they can't get an abortion. So now it kind of isn't between the person and the the medical advisor. It's between the state and the and like the medical advisor. So I guess this is kind of like an overarching question with a lot of it is like, would you just, especially if you're not going to be doing anything to like encourage these types of acts, then would it then have to, it would have to be a federal like level law or something to encourage everyone to allow for abortions to be legal and then just like leave it up to the individual. Right. And, and you, you know, you just talked your way through the issue as it exists right now with the, you know, the Supreme court decision that came down because the Supreme court essentially said it is for the States to decide. And with the caveat that if you want it to be a federal law, then Congress needs to codify it in law. And that has been the case from day one, right? From Roe v. Wade, that has been the the issue, that if your elected, elected representatives that you sent to Congress from your state, that, you know, are... are committed to to codifying to solidifying to making law um that whether you call it a a right to abortion or whether it says it's between medical providers and uh the individual and the government cannot you know infringe upon this that it's a you know again it it falls in this uh, medical realm of, of of medical decisions um, and, and the government does not have a right to do that. So the attention and the focus has been grossly misplaced on, you know, the Supreme Court uh, in, in, in frankly, in Roe v. Wade, because, again, you'll hear the left say Roe v. Wade guaranteed a right to abortion. No, it did not. That is not the role. You know, the, the Supreme Court does not create laws the Supreme Court only enforces laws. And in fact, even Justice Ginsburg had said, 
you know, Roe v. Wade was legislating from the Supreme Court, which was not the role of the Supreme Court, and and that it was no surprise that that would, you know, someday be overturned. But what in overturning it, what it does is return it to the states and say, states, it's up to you to decide. And what that really means is Congress being the body of the representatives of all of the states, you need to codify it into law. Why hasn't it been done? Right? Why hasn't it been done? Because if you go ahead and do it, then politicians and, and people who have made their career in politics have one less issue to run on um, to get themselves elected. B bottom line, plain and simple. And you can hear it. You hear it in what, you know, you, you hear it on both sides. Most recently, you heard it from Biden. If I get reelected, you know, in 24, first thing I'm going to do is codify, you know, Roe v. Wade, you know, codify the a right of abortion and you can do it now, or you could have done it before. Um, overturn. You know, they, they they lost the lost the house. Right. It could have been done. It could have been Obama could have done it in two thousand. You know, two thousand eight. There are plenty of opportunities to do it. The willpower to do it is not there because it is a massive issue upon which the political bodies are able to, um, uh, you know, are able to raise money and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, me coming into office as president, again, I could put it forward, but it's still up to the Congress to decide. And unfortunately, the Congress is still going to be full of those politicians that see the net benefit in not resolving it. All right. Um, I guess another thing that you kind of reminded me of in saying, like what Biden could do in terms of like the Roe v. Wade I also feel like one of the things that bothers me about all presidential candidates this happened with Trump, this happened with Biden, is like unkept promises. Um, okay. I know like a uh, big thing was like the student debt relief kind of just slowly going down to nothing at this point. Yeah. Um, and I know you said uh, that student debt is something that should be paid for, you know, and I don't even necessarily disagree or agree. I just know in talking to some of my friends um i i have been presented some interesting talking points on that so if yes. you want to just give your thoughts on like the student debt and um possibly uh, i guess like you obviously said you would not uh vouch for paying it off any of it but like just your thoughts on that right so like i said in there you took it on you paid it right you 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 wanted to get this education the school you went to you you made a conscious decision to pursue whatever degree it was you wanted to pursue, to take on the debt in order to pursue that degree. Now, whether those jobs exist and whether, you know, whether your your plan was, you know, I, I one day I was sitting at, I was actually sitting at a bar and I heard a young woman sitting next to me that had just completed her master's program. And she said, well, I just finished my master's program. So some company is going to have to offer me a lot of money to work for them so that I can get the experience. That's hard fact. That is not how life works, right? Nobody, just because you don't mistake your academic credential with some kind of qualification to do anything, right? It is just the beginning of, of your journey into the workforce and in, in making a difference.
Now, hopefully people are still listening after that. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, think, I think there is a much more realistic, reasonable, um, and an effective way to make education affordable. And I think what we need to look at is a system that is basically a, a, a private public partnership, right? So when we, and, and it ties into a lot of these other issues when we, you know, tax the rich and corporations and corporate tax rates and, and, and all the rest of it, right? I think what would be much more productive is the major industries and the major players within these industries actually partnering within the education systems in a really productive way as to say, when we look at each one of these, when we look at these fields, we know, and we do it right now in a lot of ways, right? Because there are a lot of benefits if you go into any of the STEM sciences, right? Mm -hmm. You go into any STEM programs, a lot of times there's grants and, and, you know, uh, um, you know, special programs with companies. I essentially think you almost need a, a, a job interview um, to go to college that the career that you're looking to embark on, these major corporations should actually be finding the best and the brightest talents coming out of high school and sponsoring them through college. To say, yes, you know, you have up till this point, you have proven. And again, measurable set of criteria. Not everybody's getting a free ride and all the rest of it. But we know, we know out of, out of the class of, of 2026, let's say, right? So out of the class of 2026, going forward, we are going to need X number of people in these career fields. And this is where we want to focus attention. So it needs to be the industries that are investing in that workforce, who are investing in the young people and the young people's education and not just putting, you know, computers in the classrooms or, you know, offering one or two internships a year. But I'm talking about them taking on the thousands of people collectively who need to enter that workforce and need to be prepared for it. And whether that model, you know, looks like, straight up paying tuition or uh it 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 becomes sponsorships of um uh, you know particular university programs in particular areas and 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 all the rest of it so i think there needs to be first and foremost that kind of focus what are the jobs and what are the careers that we truly need to prepare young people for for the future right yeah. now you know, the large chunks of those are going to be your, 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 your basic industries and all the rest of it, right? All of your STEM sciences and we need finance and we need business managers and, and, and all the rest of it. But we also need, you know, we also need artists and activists and researchers and, um, you know, mechanics and, and, and plumbers and, and, and all of those. So again, we need to get out of this mindset of the, um, you know, of the trades versus a professional career versus, you know, you know, what's better and look at it more collectively as what is the country going to need going forward. And then looking to those institutions collectively that provide that kind of training and then saying, how do we put money to work smarter? 
I would rather tax a corporation less if more of that money goes directly to putting a young person through an entire education program that, that you know, prepares them for the future, right? The federal government, I don't need that in my, you know, the federal government doesn't need that in the coffers. That money needs to be going direct, um, you know, direct to the source. So this idea, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to pay for, we're going to make college free by, you know, taxing the corporations, um, you know, and, and raising the tax rate, which are going to drive them out of the country uh, if if they don't drive them out of business. But instead say, you know, we're going to have a low corporate tax rate, um, but there is, a, you know, these, these profits and, and part of the profitability of your company becomes your investment in the future. Because then as a shareholder, right, now I know, well, hold on now, you know, so I, I've got stock in this company and now I'm not worrying about it being taxed. But now as a shareholder, I'm going to say, well, yeah, I want, you know, I want my stock to keep rising. I want to know this company is going to be successful in the future. So as a shareholder, I'm going to now put pressure on the, the company to say, you better be going and finding the best talent. Then we better be finding them out of high school and we better be investing in them and, you know, and, and all the rest of it and making sure we have, you know, resilient, sustainable careers, um, you know, for everybody, for the for the industries that exist now and the industries that are there in the future. And, you know, I think that's something that people who invest in these companies will get behind because they're also then they're also investing in the young people in the future of the company. And it's not dependent on, um, you know, the ups and downs of, of, of which party is in office and which ways the tax rate going to go and, and all the rest of it. We begin eliminating some of those games. So the the short of that is, you know, the it is what it is right now. Um, and and no, I don't think there should be any relief. You know, I and you know, and 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 people make the argument. They say, well, you know, I know how much you know it was a burden on me. I'm happy to give it up for for somebody else and and all the rest of it. I get it. That's very that's, that's very nice. Um, but you know, I also, I also get the point. There are a lot of people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, I mean, I, for one, never took a student loan. Um, you know, I went in the military, I used my GI benefits, um, to get out of that. I, I had, you know, companies that I worked for that, you know, I got money from to, to go to school and, and, and all the rest of it too. Um, there, there's a little bit of character building that is somewhat lacking now to be honest with you that making and owning these decisions comes from but i also don't think it is the best system i don't think i think it is way too expensive it's ridiculous i think these universities have more than enough money if they wanted to give everybody free tuition they you know they could 90% of them are you know just raising their salaries for the rest of their own career and not particularly worried about making sure that students have, you know, a reasonable tuition rate and all the rest of it. So um, I say where I'm at on it. Uh, well, okay. So I have a couple, couple of notes on that. Um, I guess I'll start with um, the way in terms of like corporations paying for school. Um, that is, that is in some ways, 
the it's kind of backwards from how you said it instead of it being out of high school to you can go to maybe school for a little bit and have like your master's degree paid off by like a company or by like your your whatever there's forms of that already oh, yeah. which i right. which i think definitely helps uh your i guess case to um implement that at an earlier age um there was a couple things though in terms of us taking on student loans and like consciously like oh i made this decision i did this whatever um, I think a couple pieces of that are are flawed for this specific group. This past maybe ten years um, uh, of just like how high the the prices, and yeah. also if we aren't, I guess you know we, we talked about earlier with the age limits. You know, you're 21 when you can drink. You're 25 and you can rent a car, but right. all you got to be is about 16 and a half, 17 years old to basically sign over your life to 40 years of your life to paying off school. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, yeah, you are conscious of that, but how conscious can you possibly be at that age is just a question and uh, not a question, even like, I guess just a question for you. Yeah. No, I mean, that's super, super valid. I agree with you hundred and I agree with you a hundred percent. Right. Right. And this becomes where where we've got to, you know, you've got to take emotion, you know, we've where we have to get realistic and reasonable. Okay. You're right. So it, you know, 16, 17, we say you can begin taking on this debt, you know, signing away for your your college education, right? We have politicians who say we want you to vote at 16, right? You should vote at 16. 18 is the legal age of emancipation where you get to go to adult prison. <laughs> you know, if you yeah, make yeah. It, make the bad decision, you get to go to adult prison. You Your credit file starts, you know, all of that. You can't drink till you're 21. You can buy a rifle at, at 18. You can't buy a handgun till you're 21 or 25. And just is that like, true? Yeah, dependent. Yeah. Wait, what, what was that? So you can, so, so in most states, yeah, you can buy a long gun, a rifle, at eighteen, but you cannot buy a handgun until you're twenty-one. I've never heard that. That is that that might be the most insane thing. That might so, be the that is insane. <laughs> but at eighteen, but at eighteen, you can go into the military and they'll hand you you know rocket launchers, right? Right, and then at twenty-five, right at twenty, like you said, at twenty-five, you can then rent a car. Because then the rental car companies say you're mature enough. You can stay as long as you're in school. You can stay on your parents' car, your parents' health insurance until you're 26. Yeah. Um, if you are, you know, the child of divorced parents and the parent is receiving child support for you, in most states, or you know, the, it varies between states. I should say, you know, the cutoff of when you have to stop paying child support is is 18 in some states it's 21 in other states um when you you know it's interesting so i saw i go back to an earlier point about statistics right yeah so i just saw our statistics that gun violence is the number one leading cause of young people in america right now more young people die of gun violence than of um of 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 car accidents, of cancer, of of drug overdoses, and everything like that. And I thought to myself, "Wow, that's a surprising fact." 
and I started, you know, researching and, you know, you do a quick Google search and, and that's, it comes up, right? Number one fact, number one fact, true, true, true. What you need to dive a little more deeper into is that the CDC changed the definition of a young person. So they used to calculate it until 18 years old. Now they calculate it to 21. So now, uh, I'm sorry, ch a child. They say, well, you know, we still send people to pediatricians until they're 21. So they're actually still children. Um, so, you know, the, so it's convenient for them now to include upwards of 21 in that statistic. So now they can say it's the number one leading cause of death among children. Because when you say children, you're thinking of nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, you know, whatever. So I guess the point being this this whole age issue, and 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 again, this is the politicization of 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 you know of an issue. When are you legally an adult, right? And and again, to an old guy like me, well, you're legally an adult when it's convenient for you, right? Mm -hmm. You're legally an adult. So when you're when you're 16 and you want to drink, you're gonna say, Well, I'm old enough to drink. I'm old enough, you know, I'm old enough to sign up and take on all this thing. I should be old enough to I should be old enough to do this. I should be old enough to do that, right? Then you go get into a car accident and they're like, Oh, you're gonna go to jail. You say, Well, I'm not I'm just a kid. I'm I'm not even 18 yet. You know, I'm not even it, it becomes a very, very convenient tool depending on the circumstances to say, define yourself when, you know, when am I legally adult responsible for all of my own actions and all of my own consequences of my actions and, and, and all the rest of it. What should that age be? I don't know. Be honest with you. I'd kind of say 25, just, for, you know, just from life experience. I think 25 is, is basically the point by which you should sort of have it all, you know, figured out to a degree and 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 really have and I think even from a physiological and psychological standpoint, they say the the human brain is not fully developed until it's 25 and, and all the rest of it. And then I'd put everything at 25. You know what? You can't drink till you're 25, you can't uh, drive till you're 25. You can when you turn 25, carte blanche, go out the door, do whatever you want. God bless you, green skies, blue lights, or blue light, <laughs> blue skies, green lights um you know ha have at it so you know i think that that whole argument of you know when are you taking on because again you can you say oh you know oh i was only 16 and this and that but you'd be happy to vote for 16 when you were at 16 wouldn't you right i mean if you know you can you say some people sure yeah. right you know if they said hey the drinking age is 16 right some people would be happy with that. You can buy cigarettes at 16. Great. Be happy with that. You can take on student debt at 16. Oh, I'm just a kid. Yeah. There's or, also a couple. I don't love the equivalence in those, though. I feel like, obviously, I mean, alcohol has ruined people's lives in a lot of ways. But um, I feel like that is. That's ruined people's lives. Yeah. And that's, a, that's what I'm going to say. Like, I feel like. But debt is like a it almost feels like a guarantee like if you're going to be in debt for like a 40 year period i just think of let, let me give you an example um 
not to put my sister on blast in any sense. She's five years older than me. She's 26. Um, she's turning 27 this year. She's a teacher, elementary school teacher. Yeah. And uh, she went to a private school in a uh, private uh, college, um, Emmanuel in Boston. Yep. Um, she loved it. She had, she had a great time. She doesn't regret a thing, uh, but that's a lot of money to, and also she's going to need her master's because in order to make right. any significant money, you need your master's, but that's also a and lot let me of tell money. You, and, and you know, so, and then that raises a good point because I think when we're talking, when I'm talking in terms of, you know, corporations and all the rest of it, um, you know, I think when it comes to teachers, when it comes to to people who work in the public sector, I think those are the degrees that should be free, essentially, that we are we are picking the best and the brightest of people who are called mm-hmm. to serve their communities in some way like that. That 100 percent is uh, is is a job and is a function that as a country we need to make investments in. Yep, and I uh, I just know that this country definitely also is pushing you to be a teacher, to be a nurse, to be these things, and then you're getting pushed into it. You're like, all right, I'll just, you know, it kind of gets programmed into you. My sister was going to be teaching no matter what. She was five years old, lining me up with all the dolls, teaching us about history. So she was born to be a teacher. But yeah. like, it's also very ingrained. They want you. They they need these positions. So with things like that, I feel like that would be an area. Like me, I'm a business student. I'm hoping to get into sales and I took on my debt. I was very aware at a young age, what I was doing. I felt like I knew what I was signing when I signed my life away, (laughs) but I, uh, so I, and I know I'll be okay. Like I'll be fine. But when I look at my sister, all my friends are nurses as well. I look at the nurses and I'm like, they're doing just the most ridiculous work, by the way. It's crazy. The stories I hear out of these people for not that much and on top of that they paid a ton to go to school and they're also the smartest people i know so it's like it all feels back i mean you're right because that's a great example because that is exactly you know when i talk about we when i talk about the investment in people and whether it's a you know a company whether we're making it as a company or or you're making it you know as a country you're 100 right there needs to be that delineation um, between, you know, sort of the public service and the, in the private sector, um, you know, and, and, and teaching definitely, you know, falls into that. Look, that's what I'm saying. It's, you know, they're all, no matter what issue you want to get into, they're all these giant, you know, they're, they're gigantic issues with a lot of intricacies and a lot of, you know, offshoots and, you know, the unintended consequences and, and all the rest of it. And all I can say is when you're, you know, when you're, you're sitting in that chair as, you know, as the president, um, while I can have my own opinion, right. While I can sit there and say, I can lay out, you know, exactly what I laid out to you. We can pretend we're sitting, you know, in the cabinet room and, you know, you're the secretary of education and all the rest of it. At the end of the day, there's still going to be people in the room that are smarter than both of us combined. Mm-hmm. who begin to formulate the details around that and begin to say, what is it that can we, you know, where can we really initiate change? And that's where I go back to this initial, you know, some of my, my initial comment about the government beginning to think in terms of how do we best serve the American people, right? And to sit around the, you know, the, the Oval Office or to sit around the cabinet room 
and have that discussion in this way, right, is exactly what needs to happen. Is that we need to sit there and say, well, here's my vision. And then, you know, a guy like you, you know, says, well, you know, there's these cases and and, and this and that. We say, yes, we need to carve that out. Um, and we go forward. But what it's not about is neither one of us are jumping in there saying, ah, you know, but we've got to worry, you know, this next election cycle is coming up. And so we got to, you know, we got to do something bold. So we get all those. So just say we're going to write it all off. Just say we're going to, you know, give $100,000 in debt relief just so we get, you know, get elected. That's the problem. And, and that's why, as you started this question, right, politicians come in and say, I'm going to wipe this away. I'm going to wipe that away regardless of if they have the authority to do it, whether it's legal, whether it's all that. And nobody's back to basics focused on saying, how, how do we resolve it, right? And, and, and it's almost why I put things out there on the site the way I did, where I said, you took it on, you own it, you know, so sad, too bad, right? Is that an end all? No, but it at least gives us, at least says where you're coming from, and then you know the parameters that you're working in to say, okay, now we've got to make a case and we've got to go forward and let me see what this guy's all about. And let's find, you know, let's find the win-win in all of it. Because like, you know, I hope you see and, and I hope it came through, you know, I'm not, I'm not staunch on, well, this is how I feel and this is my idea and da, da, da. There's a lot of, there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of wiggle room in there um, to find the best solution mm-hmm. all the way, you know, all the way down the line. Yeah. And I would also uh, say like, especially with these types of issues, there isn't like a right answer in a lot of ways. And there is stuff to be carved out, but I also, I'm, I'm of the belief that if you start carving too much out, you don't really got much of the pumpkin left, you know, like this, right. you, you really need to like make an, exception or like make like a baseline for like when something may apply for an exception but most of the time the rule is the rule um that's why you know like any anything can be explained if like the scenario is correct um and i feel like just leaving that available for like all right well if you enter a courtroom and you did this or you did that but the circumstances all add up the judge you know or whoever like you know and is in power should be able to look at it and be able to say, all right, well, we all understand what happened here, right? Like, do we really need to like follow exactly what the book is telling us just because this situation is the, one of those perfect uh, ex- exceptions to the rule, you know? Well, yeah. You know, and that's why I think it it comes down to that focus. So, um, or, or it comes down to that principle I'm talking about, about, you know, serving the American people. Right. So when you're, when you're, and I talk about my first hundred days in that way, mm-hmm. that, you know, the first hundred days needs to be this complete review by, by all of the, the institutions and the agencies that fall under the federal government as to what are we doing in the way that we do it? Does it best serve the interest of the American people? And, and do we, and do, do the people that are serving them act in that way, right? So I, I'm in full agreement. I think, you know, when you approach an agency and say, well, you know, here's here's the rule, here's my situation, da-da-da, 
there's nothing worse than a bureaucrat who says, well, that's the way it is. And, you know, that's the, um, the law and that's their answer has to be, well, how do I help you navigate this to a successful outcome? Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think everywhere those provisions, they already exist and they're already, you know, in there. And if they're not in there, then you need to say, well, you're right. This doesn't, you know, fall within any of these categories. And, and we need to have a quick expedient process to, you know, make, make that comparison. But that's part of the problem. We don't, you know, you got to do a little gym, mental gymnastics sometimes um, would, um... to, to make something fit. I would also say um, with this in mind of like the idea of exceptions or just thinking through a problem logically, as as you said, uh, reasonable and realistic. Um, I feel like one thing that's been, I guess, in the forefront is people that are in prison for um, marijuana charges, nonviolent, obviously, like marijuana charges, just like uh, some people serving up to like life or like you know 25 plus years whatever um for charges that no longer exist we no longer see as an offense i want to know what your opinion is on that and then how you think you would um i guess fight for that yeah you know i mean it's an interesting it's an interesting conundrum right so how do you you know the offense was committed at a time when it was the you know the law they had a you know they they had broke the law um, and I think this is part of the hesitation as to why they refuse to change it at the federal level, because probably a vast majority of those that are sitting in there for 30 plus you know, years already and, and have another 30 to go um, were for violations of of federal law. So, again, I think there's a I think there's a balance to be struck that recognizes um, that, you know, you did break the law. Right. Times have changed, opinions have changed. Now we have a whole, you know, marijuana industry. So I guess the ultimate question is that you look at those cases again and you say, okay, well, is this an individual who is going to go out and commit crimes, right? And 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 commit something in a similar egregious fashion to something that that happened, or um, you know, is it somebody that can go out and become a productive member of society? And I would almost say that, you know, again, nonviolent offenders, you mm-hmm. know, the, the the 20-year-old who had himself a great, you know, pot business in the uh, in the, the late 70s, early 80s, you know, even in the 90s or whatever, he might become out, you know, come out and become a superstar in the cannabis industry now. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there needs to be a, a review Um of all of those cases. But again, right now, that would have to be up to the states to do because the federal law, marijuana, is still illegal at the federal level. So we either need the people of the states through their elected representatives in Washington, D.C. to codify into law to say that we want you know federal legalization of marijuana um, to happen and uh, and then begin the begin the review process of people that are in prison for those crimes to say, okay, time has been served, law has changed. you know, are they are they capable of 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 reentering society and, and you know and, and, and not only capable, but 
you know, are we able to set them up for success, um, so to speak, after after being in, you know, institutionalized for that long? You know, I think we have a responsibility, uh, you know, when it comes to that as well. Um, I think uh, an issue that might take a little bit of time, and if it ends up being the last thing we talk about, then that's fine. But um, I know that I guess a lot of what I've asked of you is kind of unfair because it's a lot of things that like we agree, like you kind of can't change. <laughs> like you can't go in there and be like, here you go. Um, you can have your opinion. You can try to strike balance, but that's all you can do. What? But one thing that, you know, uh, I guess the president does do is like they got to sign off on the, uh, the the balance, you know, on the on the um, what is it? The budget. budget. The, yeah, the budget. Thank you. Um, Every like it was it's a quarterly. Is it a quarter? Yeah, the quarterly? Yeah. Um, so. I know that the budget is something that like, especially being a man that like uh, served in our military, you, you know, about the exorbitant amount we spend. I know it's not just directly going towards here's a gun, here's a tank. I know it's going towards education and all types of things as well. But um, what are some things that I guess you would want to make sure of maybe adjust or whatever before you signed off on a, on a budget? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, going back to one of your initial statements, you know, the stuff we can't change. And and that's what, you know, I want to get people out of that mindset because you absolutely can change it, you know, mm -hmm. and you, and you, you change it with your vote. That is, you know, that is the way you do it from, you know, they like to say it all elections are local from getting involved in those local elections and, and, and all the rest of it, all the way up through the, the, the presidency. You know, that is, you know, how you affect change and it takes, and it takes time, you know, yeah. change at country levels is, is generational and you see it in, you know, the, 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 the former Soviet union, you know, when, when, when I was a kid and the, the communism fell and, um, you know, the changes in Eastern Europe and, and all of that take generations. And it's the same here in America that, you know, you want to get on that path. You, you got to vote and you got to, you know, institute change in that way. Um, you know, when it comes to the, the budget, right. The big question is how do you, you know, how do you balance the budget? And again, balancing the budget goes back to that basic fundamental question is what we're spending and where we're spending it in the best interest of the people of the United States. That's the fun, you know, line item by line item, that's what you have to you have to go through and you know i think we all hear stories everything from you know the the five thousand dollar toilet seat cover to you know um giving you know two or three hundred million dollars to india for research on the you know on on some beetles sexual you know behavior you know there's 200 million for that that would be you know, I'd love to understand how that serves the best interests of the American people beyond saying, well, aren't they going to be happy that we gave them $200 million and they'll love us? Okay, I can I can do without the love, um, you know, for 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 saving the taxpayers 200, you know, $200 million. Mm -hmm. um, so those are really the things that, you know, I would be I'd be looking at and 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 challenging. You know, mm -hmm. I think a lot of, you know, the programs that we do have and a lot of the the grants and, you know, I my day job, I work in a nonprofit, you know, so, you know, the grant system and, and, and funding everything from, you know, hunger relief and, and homelessness to, to, you know, to the arts, 
are all important. I think that's that is something we all collectively, um, you know, that's a, a good good way to spend our tax money um, is is helping helping people help people at the local level um, the best we can. But um, you know, it all comes down to that question: is what we're spending, you know, how does what we spend serve the you know serve the American people? And then having those checks and balances in place to, you know, to make sure that it is being spent in that capacity and, and you know, that it is actually delivering a result and we're not just, you know, funding some wild idea. Yeah, I also I also feel like there there might be some some areas where, you know, there everyone wants more money is kind of like the idea. Like I remember I watched a. Joe Rogan podcast where he had on Neil deGrasse Tyson and he talked about the military budget in comparison to like the budget. I forget uh, what the specific sector was, but basically where he was working in, like, it was just like, uh, like astral exploration. Um, And he was saying, it's like, if you, if you cut off like one, 100, that little half of that white part of a dollar, and then cut that in half. He's like, that's the amount we're getting in comparison to the dollar that the that the military gets. Um, do you feel like this is this is something that I talked to one of my friends about before in preparation for this because I didn't know as much as he does. Um, a lot of the military spending isn't necessarily, as I said, going towards like a nuke or a bomb or whatever. A lot of it can go towards these other things that the military funds. Yep. Um, do you feel like that is in a sense giving the military too much power over some of these programs that might be within it that are beneficial, but it's like, why is that technically under the military budget? Can we just separate them and just make it, I guess, give them less power? Yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, so I think if you remember, or if, uh, are you ever aware of the Eisenhower speech, Eisenhower's speech about the defense industrial complex? I have, but you need to. So we're essentially said, you know, every for every missile that's fired, you know, for every warship that's built, somebody is left without clothes, somebody is left unfed, and 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 all the rest of it. Um, and and that was you know almost a prophecy in a sense of the power of the and um, defense industrial base and defense industrial complex. And when we say that, we're talking about the the mega corporations that are, you know, building weapon systems and 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 all the rest of it. So you have that that that's the first part of it is is their power and influence to be able to get and hold those dollars. And a lot of that becomes connected to universities, right? You look at MIT and Lincoln Laboratories. That's essentially you know a government run office inside of a a, a university my mother works um, there yeah right right yeah. so <laughs> you know what i'm talking about i do so you, you know there's a does that need to be in a university or does that actually need to be in another part of the government are we just getting cheap you know child labor if we're gonna say you know <laughs> under 18 or under yeah. 22 as a child you know are we are we getting child labor into the defense industrial complex um you know, I think, you know, and then we have a lot of that spending that is, that is, I'd call it the, the influencing, um, 
you know, where we're spending, we are spending a lot on helping other nations build their capacity. And, you know, Ukraine's a prime example um, uh, because it's in the headlines right now. But, you know, to to an extent and in very similar ways, we do this all over the world. We we arm and train um, nations where we believe we have a national security interest um, for one reason or another. And we'll sit and we'll say it's, you know, the preservation of democracy. I'd say more often than not, it's the control of resources and the ability to influence, um, you know, exert, exert our influence. So in short, I think you're right that all of those things could be separated out of the defense budget and put in other areas. In doing so, I don't think we would necessarily have the same type of accountability that you might have as when it does fall under the military structure. I think you might lose some flexibility by putting that money into other you know agencies and departments i mean it's 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 a good question it's worth exploring more it's worth you know diving into and and like i said i can see i see both the value of putting it directly in the hands of the people um who would probably do a lot of good things with it i can also see the rationale behind put it in the military budget and then we can um you know shift it around without eyes seeing where we're shifting right. it um which again it's not so much in keeping it from the american people but in keeping it from our enemies um because there are plenty of them out there so it's a definitely worth exploring i i totally get you know your friend's point there i think he's i, I think he's spot on um but i think there's a, again there's a lot more under the surface as to why they plug it in there versus uh uh, you know, like you said, versus it's actually getting spent on a missile or whatnot. Yeah, he uh, he's a very intelligent guy. Actually, he helped me write up a lot of these questions. He um, he was he was my political resource because I don't really, again, I don't have a huge political background. I know enough to to be able to feel like I could talk to you about it, but otherwise, I needed his assistance. But you know what? But that's again part of the reason that I'm running. Right? That's what I hate about the system as it exists. That's what I hate about politics and 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 the 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 way things are structured right now the fact of the matter is you should not feel the need to have some special education and some special qualification to ask a question or petition your government right and you know my wife is an immigrant right and i dealt with uh, um, uh, immigration and everything like that and people kept why don't you get a lawyer oh just get the lawyer just sign off and get the lawyer no you know and it and and you know Unfortunately, like I said, I retired at 47, you know, I retired a few years back. So I have nothing better to do with my time in a lot of ways. <laughs> but, you know, the idea that I need to be frustrated, coerced, bullied, you know, whatever, into hiring a lawyer to go get an answer from my elected representatives, from my government, from the agencies that are there to serve me. That's the problem. The problem isn't me. The problem is the 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 agency and the bureaucracy and the system that they've set up 
has been structured in such a way as to 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 my boggle your mind and frustrate you into just wanting to hire somebody else right. and we have an entire cottage industry of of lawyers and and god bless them because they want to do it you know but nonprofits and ngos that are all there going you know willing to represent you in front of the government you know when when that shouldn't be the case things should be you know explainable enough and easy enough to grasp hold of and and you know that you have the confidence to say no I can go ask somebody that, you know, some guy that is just running for president, whether you're talking to me or whether you're talking to Joe Biden, you should not feel like, you know, you need to have some special background to be able to ask the question or, you know, or, or get an answer that, you know, that you understand. And, and again, whether you like the answer or not is a different question. But so long as you can say, all right, I guess I see where he's coming from. That's a win. Yeah, my uh, that's probably the thing that was most intriguing about your, the other podcasts I listened to and just your whole, I guess your, your shtick, uh, no pun intended. And in general, just the idea that you are willing to um, reach out to people that know more than you uh, admit that people may know more than you, but also be able to kind of pull up the bootstraps and do, do the work yourself. Um, really try to learn. You're not just going to impose your opinion on other people. You want like to, to really just do what's best for the majority and in a reasonable sense, you know, reasonable. And what was the other word? Uh, realistic and reasonable. realistic and reasonable point. And right. uh, yeah. And, and a, you know, and, and, and again, you know, some people's reality is a lot different than other people's reality, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, You know, but, but that's the thing. Let's, let's, let's get out of this fantasy that politicians are some kind of magical creature um, you know, that are, that are supposed to have all of the answers and whatnot. And I said it in another podcast, you know, to me, it's about leadership and it's about the willingness to, to sit down and listen to everybody and, and make a path forward, you know, and along that path, make changes that you need to make and, and make adjustments that you need to make, but, but do it with the intention that we're going to resolve a problem and not with the intention of, Oh, I've got to pass it on, or I've got to make somebody else look bad while I'm doing it. Yeah. Just do what we friggin' need you to do. And I, I, I feel like in a lot of senses, like you feel like, I mean, you're just kind of using your, you want to use your resources properly and make sure that everything's getting done. I know one area that I, I heard you speak about prior was that you lived in Ukraine. Is that correct? Uh, so I lived in uh, I lived in Lithuania. Lithuania, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, in, in, in a lot. I spent a lot of time in Ukraine. Yes, yeah, through the years. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like you definitely have a good like finger on the pulse. So if there is a place that I, I feel like you have a, some expertise in, especially with your military background and spending some time outside of the U.S. and in these areas, um, what are your thoughts on I guess like the amount that we are sending over to Ukraine in, ter- in terms of assistance and also. I guess um, just to cover it, Zelensky's most recent comments about uh, just like sending over the U.S. must send over their the uh, boys and girls to to basically die here <laughs> as part of NATO. Um, That's right. Yeah. So, what what were your thoughts on those comments and just the amount that we're helping? Yeah. Well, you know, we're we 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 put ourselves in a very bad position. Um, you know, as you might have heard in the other one, I I kind of go through the history. That this this was no surprise. This was perfectly preventable. 
This is the the end play on a 20-year plan for Putin. This is the end play, you know, that was the result of a lot of bad U.S. policy decisions, um, you know, in the former Soviet Union since the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and since the fall of communism, you know, there in the 90s. Um, so this is this is a long time coming. And what nobody and what nobody anticipated was Zelensky's willingness and or ability to rally the people and, and rally the troops and, and stand and fight Russia. Um, and that put the United States, again, in a bad position because now we we, we have to support them and we have to um, provide you know the aid that they, they need to do that. So when we look at some of the aid packages that just went went now, and we say you know oh, two hundred million dollars, and it's supporting their um, uh, their social programs, and their you know their elderly and their retirees are going to get their paychecks, and you know all that money could be put to use here. Hundred percent right, hundred percent accurate, um, very true. We still need to do it because if we don't do it, then somebody else is going to come in and do it, and the somebody else that's going to come in and do it is China. And then you're going to suddenly find, you know, a, a resolution in, in Ukraine that is not not only in our best interest, but also not in the best interest of the rest of Western Europe. Um, so we 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 are doing what we really have no choice but have to do um, as a result of decades and decades of other bad decisions upon bad decisions. Um you know, as far as as far as sending troops over there, the you know we we have this idea of Russia as a nuclear power and all the rest of it. I think if we sent U.S. troops over there, it would be very quick and decisive, and we would we would push Russia right out of there. And and I have very little doubt. Um, and, and very little confidence based upon what Russia has shown thus far of their ability to mount a significant defense. That being said, should we do that? Should we push them out of Russia? We throw off the perception of the balance of power in the world. And we get into a much more contentious state of affairs in a number of areas um you know the 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 ripple effect of proving that russia is not the military might that it portrays itself to be um the ripple effect of that would be catastrophic in a lot of places in what ways Um, do you can you explain that further well you know part of the Part of the balance of power is your ability to to project power. And, you know, right now, the right, you know, we've seen how Russia has fought a ground war in Ukraine and nobody's really afraid. So the only thing we have to fall back on is saying, well, they have nukes, you know, and and that's why you see everybody going there and saying we don't want to escalate and we don't want to. The idea that, you know, if we went in there on the ground and started pushing them back that, you know, it's going to start a nuclear war, I think is still, you know, minute. Um, I think what happens, though, in that case is, number one, you begin, number one, you see the end of Putin 
right? So he gets pushed out. That becomes the political the the political death of of of, of Putin. And then we're because of his you know twenty plus years of control in Russia. When when Putin goes right, undoubtedly human nature, Putin will you know have a heart attack, whatever, drop you know dead silently in his sleep. Whenever that happens, we are going to go back into a power vacuum like we had in the mid '90s, where the oligarchs and organized crime, you know, sort of ruled supreme until they could decide who who comes back, you know, who who comes into power at that point. Now. Granted, there's probably lots of things happening in the background and power players and positioning and, and all the rest of it. But it ultimately comes down to who can go sit in that chair and maintain control of the civil and military authorities and the the oligarchs and business figures and, and, and balance the economy without a, without a major upset. But if we're to just push them out and Putin falls and we have a power vacuum, then you're going to see a lot of those breakaway republics of the early 90s down in you know the southern part of Russia. Those conflicts start to you know exasperate and, and, and build out again. You'll see these other pushes for independence. You're going to see a fall of Russian businesses around you know um, uh, throughout Eastern Europe because so much of the infrastructure is still reliant upon uh, still reliant upon Russia. Um, you're going to see, you know, China is going to be forced into a position of either ex coming to Russia's defense and exerting itself as a global power um, to either, you know, save Russia's face or to pick up the, you know, the void in, in Europe um, where Russia's, you know, stepping out because the, let's say, economy's collapsing and we're going back into this 90s. They're the only other country that is is able to step in there. The only other superpower, let's say, that's able to step in there, um, and then that becomes the direct conflict between U.S. Chinese policy, trade, and and whatnot. So it becomes a hot mess at the end of the day. Yeah, opinion. yeah. Do you think uh, maybe pushing Russia back and just showing our willingness to be there? Uh, may also prevent China from then going and you know they they have their whole situation. They could be going and doing the same thing. Uh, no, nothing. China's going to do it anyway. It yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter at this point. Right. Right. It, it doesn't matter. They're they're going. You know they're going to do it. The Putin. You know Putin. And you know I said if you know I figured once he had once he had taken Ukraine and you know the week then he would be showing up on the doorstep of the Baltics the week afterwards. Um. Because again, from a geopolitical standpoint, he has to have it, right? In the same way, from a geopolitical standpoint, China has to have, you know, Taiwan. Um, so they will eventually do it. I, I don't have any doubts about that. You know, and they've made no secret of their intention to do it. So it's all, it's all just a matter of timing. Um, and and you know, again what we're going to do in response well look we've been conditioned over the last you know 30 years we don't have the stomach for you know war anymore so do you think um that would be a much more i guess i guess a swifter process for china in in terms of how difficult it ended up being for russia because i think a lot of people thought that russia would just kind of like eat it apart eat up ukraine but do you think that like this, we won't be surprised about what happens with China and Taiwan? Like they should theoretically just go in and do whatever they want in a lot of ways, right? 
right they should you know and 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 that was kind of the same thing you know in 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 russia um now you know but we very much i think i think the difference would be i think the chinese have the the sheer numbers um to just overrun um as opposed because you can't remember russia is a big country it's not a it's not a hugely populated country. yeah that's that's the difference is a lot less people over a lot less landmass area very cold very cold it's very cold yeah yeah oh, i've been through the whole thing yeah it's very very cold <laughs> mm. um another thing i guess you know what actually never mind i was gonna ask another question but i'm just gonna completely yeah, ignore yeah, that I question. nothing but time um i was gonna say instead of more of the political stuff like we we went through a lot of the stuff i wanted to go through yep. um i do have something that i wanted to ask you i didn't put it on the on this sheet i didn't know if i'd get to it or not but i remember in 2007 when um obama versus um uh, mccain was yep. the idea you know and everyone i was young i was in second grade uh but i remember it because i remember they gave all the kids a pamphlet and on one side it was Obama's page, and the other side it was McCain's page, and they basically said uh, a little blurb about who they are, gave their three interests, and then like another little and like by interest it was really like you know for Obama it was playing basketball, roller coasters, you know for McCain it was hiking, and he liked uh, coffee in the morning or whatever it was, um, and then we all had to go vote, and yeah. I remember uh, my my classroom was filled with a bunch of kids that played youth basketball. Mm -hmm. And so we see this guy that plays basketball. So we all, you know, voted for Obama. And I think less of that disappears as you get older than people think. Yeah. A lot of it is a popularity contest, who you relate with more and all that. So I guess what I want to ask you is what are three interests of yours completely apolitical? Um, yeah. I know like, you know, the, the, um, the opera could be a very important piece of that, but like, you know, sports, music, whatever it may be, what are three interests that you have? Yeah. So my three interests are probably very few people have. So, um, <laughs> no, certainly, you know, opera is a huge, I'm, I'm, I, I love opera. I, I think it's, you know, such an underrated art form and such a, a misunderstood art form. And, um, you know, a lot of what I've been doing, um, is really just sharing, you know, that passion with people and showing, you know, how great it is, you know, for emotional intelligence and, and, and recalibrating, you know, your emotions. I'll, I'll, I'll say that a lot. I say, you know, all day you're, you know, you hear political discourse, you, you know, you, you, something makes you angry, something else makes you angry. You see a picture of a puppy, you see a picture of a baby, you know, next screen, it's another thing that makes you angry. Our emotions are all out of whack you know, in so many ways. And, and that's why to me, like opera is like this, this way to recalibrate and sit back because that is what it is at its core is this emotional experience to extract from the music and the vocals, you know, okay. And try and even without understanding the lyrics, trying to connect to it on an emotional, uh, emotional level. That's why, you know, I love about it. Mm. Um, You know, a lot of, you know, some of my other, like I, I like photography, I study a little bit about like in you know independent filmmaking. I'm I'm working for a, a friend who's the yeah, first African American Steinway International artist from Iowa. Wow. Um, and I've been working you know for last year or so now doing interviews, and we're 
we're making a, a documentary about him um, because that's why I said who's who's who better to speak about the first African American internet Steinway International artist from Iowa than a fifty year old white guy from Boston <laughs> with no music experience, right? <laughs> that's that's who that's who needs to tell the story mm -hmm. um so yeah like indie filmmaking uh you know I, I i like studying that um you know i love a good road trip like road i trip. much i much prefer driving anywhere um you know my wife is an opera singer of course um and and you know she has gigs you know out in chicago los angeles you know we just at christmas we drove down to florida um, mm. my son's in the army and he's out in Kansas. Love, love, love a good road trip. Um, just getting out there and, and, you know, I always laugh, you know, driving through the country. Cause that's why I say to her, we always laugh at the billboards. I'm like, it's either conservative Christian billboard or, you know, adult entertainment next stop. <laughs> yeah. This, yeah. This, yeah. Like, and Cracker Barrel. There's yeah. no in between, you know, those are the three billboards you see when you're, you know, drive the American highway system. Mm. Um, you know, I follow base. I'm not a huge sports guy. I follow baseball. That's probably, you know, the, the one thing, if I follow anything, I'll watch a game when it's on. I never go, you know, out of my way for it. And then otherwise, you know, I smoke cigars. I drink coffee. <laughs> yeah. Go a few nights a week to the cigar club and hang out there and, um love that i'm not you know i'm not going to be setting any examples for the presidential sports award or or <laughs> anything like that my you know my time has come and passed and um you know and it's funny because the thing with sports like i can sit and watch and enjoy them but it's actually like all the people that ruin it for me you I know get it. i get it it's the fanaticism of it's like all right you know yeah that's exciting now but calm down yeah <laughs> yeah yeah like dude, nobody died <laughs> nobody took away your birthday right right it's gonna be okay good good game good you know mm, relax. The, the fanatics can go crazy and that, that i mean that i guess that's what happened in politics you know fanatics just that's what i was gonna actually brought bring up this um very loose statistic that i'm forgetting right now but in one of my classes i had actually this week um, which is funny because this was this podcast has been on my mind. I was in my class and he professor brings up the statistics showing who's who's really tweeting out there, you know, because Twitter seems to be the place for political discourse nowadays, which is funny. Um, and who's really the people tweeting and for Republican people that identified as Republican only about like, I think it was like less than 20 percent are like actually tweeting. And uh, those are the people that are considered very conservative. Yep. Um, and then of people that are like, say that they're just leaning right. They are, they only tweet at like a 10% or like 5% ratio. Yep. And the same thing goes for the, for the left, but it's a little more skewed. I think the P the left's like extreme people only like, I think 40% vote there. Yep. I mean, um, uh, tweet there. And then for like just left leaning, it's like 10 to 15% tweet. So you're really majority of the time only hearing from the real extremes. And I think that that's why that's the value in your campaign because silent majority, you know? 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. You know, I mean, the most important thing I want, you know, especially like your generation for me is interesting because you haven't, you haven't lived through anything else, right? You, you haven't seen this change. Um, and, and I don't know if you heard my spiel on one of the other podcasts about narratives. I don't know if I right? had continuing. So, so when, you know, when I was a kid growing up on the news, right, the news was facts, Right. The news was born, right? It was such and such happened today. And so-and-so said this and so-and-so said that. And now we're going to go. And and we even had, um, there was even like you watch Channel 5 News, there'd be the, the editorial comment, right? And it was the editor of the station or the producer that would get on and he would give his opinion, right? And you were very clear about what was the news item what each side said about the news item. And then when somebody was commenting and giving their opinion about the, the news item and there's been a progression over time and it's, it's fast. It's fascinating to not only live through it, but to, to sort of step out of myself and step back because you see how every even you know members of my own generation and and whatnot have have fallen into it back in back in vietnam there was a, a military strategy called hearts and minds right in order to win the war in vietnam you needed to win the hearts and minds of the people on the ground and so there was all you know there were these campaigns of of just trying to get the the vietnamese people to to love you right and 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 that was the the strategy and into the 70s and 80s, you know, it, it worked its way into the corporate world. It was all about hearts and minds. Go be a good corporate citizen and get the people in the community to, to love you and all the rest of it. And then with 9-11, right, the, that became the new threshold for, for the changes in how we think. They, there became a strategy called narrative warfare. And narrative warfare was created as a result of studying how terrorists were able to um, recruit people, right? What made somebody become an extremist and what made somebody become a terrorist? It was this idea called narrative warfare. And then the goal became, how do you counter narrative warfare and, and, and what is it? And from the mid 2000s, right? Early to mid 2000s, what was narrative warfare became just narratives in our press and in our media and in the way that the politicians talk. And if you, if you listen for the word, you'll hear it specifically said the narrative is and all of that. And mm -hmm. why is it important? It's important because the entire concept of a narrative is never, never that it's based in fact. The, a narrative is designed to trigger an emotional response and to make you feel emotionally connected to what it is that they're trying to say. And the principle of narrative warfare when it was started was that it was so impactful because the studies found that you cannot counter a narrative with fact. That if you use a specific fact to counter a narrative, you wind up look sounding worse off, yeah. right? And so from the the you know the mid two thousands 
um that used to be the republican strategy well we're just going to give facts we're just going and and they were getting crushed and they were getting killed and they're getting brutalized and it wasn't until republicans started you know they caught on and they said oh we need to have our own counter narrative and that's where this decisiveness came in so you know the the, the message in all this is is there really is an intentional manipulation to create an us versus them mentality in everything that is being presented, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if you can, if you can approach the subjects and you can, you can listen with that idea of, is this just making me emotionally respond to this or does this actually resonate with me on an intellectual level? Right. If you can, if you can separate that, then you begin to be able to understand and explore the, you know, the issues a little more. And and, and I'll just end with, you know, I go back to opera mm. and it's what I say to people about opera, right? Because people say, well, I don't listen. I, I don't understand what they're saying. Right? Okay. Well, I'm sure, you know, you've listened through the years to Pitbull and Shakira and all, the, you, you know, <laughs> so don't, don't give me the story just because it's in a foreign language, you know, you don't listen to it, you know, but the interesting thing about it is, is what I was saying. It hits these emotional nerves, right? Because that's the music was designed that way. And the vocals were designed that way. And so people, their reaction to it is interesting because it it is such a, a authentic emotional experience. People are so used to just being emotionally manipulated that when they have an authentic emotional experience, they're like, Oh, I don't like that. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's this amazing thing, but I also say to them, it, it helps you hear past the noise, right? That, that when you, you know, people are screaming slogans, whatever their, whatever the tagline of the month is, whatever the hashtag of the month is, and, and people are out there, you know, using it and talking about it and, and even if what they say doesn't make sense, right, to you on an intellectual level, because they're just they're they're because they're just repeating a narrative, they're just repeating some rhetoric and all the rest of it. And this is sort of what I get out of you know the opera is the ability to step back from those words, and and hear the emotion in what they're saying. I'm like, and if you listen for that emotion and you push the words to the side and you try and you push the logic to the side and you can say, here's a person who's scared. Here's a person who's frustrated. Here's a person who's, who's lost hope. Who's, you know, um, you know, overly excited. Who's, you know, whatever it is you're able to extract out of it. And then you say, okay, so if they're they're saying this because they're afraid, you know, now whether I think it's an irrational fear or, or whatever, but that becomes the building block to actually solving the problem, mm. right? That becomes the building block to say, you know, I could say, uh, I mean, it's like, like relationships is the same way, right? You say something to your 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 significant other, and and they say, well, well, you know, they get all upset. Well, I didn't mean for you to, you know, feel like that. I'm so, you know, and that's what you got to say, right? I'm sorry that what I said made you feel that way. That wasn't my intention, right? As opposed to telling them, no, you're wrong for feeling that way. You can't tell somebody they're wrong for feeling that way. 
So when you understand that that impact of of what's behind what they're saying, whether it is that that fear or frustration or, or whatever, and start addressing those things and having productive conversations around that rather than, you know, the aesthetics of the particular word that was chosen, I think you begin to, you know, understand and have have much more productive dialogue in a lot of ways. Yeah, these uh and a lot of like the talking heads on TV, what they say to drive these narratives a lot of times can be it's really all it does is just it it's inherently divisive and it inherently divides like people with I do with different ideals that are both that can both very well be good people. You know, someone watches uh what's a good example like John Stewart on a daily basis and then another person watches Tucker Carlson. These could right. both be great people that like, you know, you want to go and hang out with. And then like you get them so like separate on these issues and make them think that it is part of who they are. A stance right. is part of who they are. And and that the other stance is the enemy. It just like can really, it makes us like communications impossible because right. everyone's just confused with their feelings. And, and And that's the funniest thing because I'll listen to both of them. Me too. I'll listen yeah. to Tucker Carlson and I'll listen to, you know, John Stewart and, and, you know, and I'll laugh at things that that both of them say, whether they were intending on them to be funny. And as a matter of fact, that statistic, uh, the statistic I gave you earlier about that was that was John Stewart saying, you know, mm-hmm. children, you know, that's number one cause of death are, are firearms. It, you know, you made me remember he's the one that had said it. And I was like, ah, oh, that doesn't sound right. Well, yeah, they changed the you know, like I said, they changed the the criteria they were measuring back. Um, But, you know, that's why I say I think it's a. Uh, I think what's happening is good in the sense that you need, you know, you always need that dynamic tension, you know, whether it's between generations and all the rest of it, you need the new ideas and you need the dynamic tension in order to grow. Right. And in order to move forward in, in, in whatever you do, personal relationships all the way up to, you know, the, the, the country itself. Um, and I think that we need to we need to call that out more that it is a good thing, um, you know. And, and and right when I see things, you know, the 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 cancel culture ideas and the banning this and let's not hear that, you know, it, it is it's a, it's a wrong approach. It's a dangerous approach, um, but the conversations in and of themselves, even around those issues, are good because it really helps us flush out and decide who we are and who we want to be, you know, as a people. So I think, I think for all that, I think you need those people on the extremes to really understand where it is um, that you stand. And I think, I think regardless of the party and regardless of the talking heads, everybody wants the same things fundamentally, right? Everybody wants a good economy. Everybody wants to be safe, um, everyone wants to be respected and they want access and they, you know, and, 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 and it becomes a, you know, and we, we lose focus of the commonalities that, yeah, we're, we're all trying to get to the same place. We just have different ideas of, of, of how to get there. And that's ultimately what, you know, the president should be doing is not fueling that discussion, but facilitating it. Right. He should mm-hmm. be that that neutral party in a lot of ways that sits back and, you know, and when he says my friends on both sides of the aisle or, you know, 
it really, you know, needs to be that approach to governing and, and that approach to the presidency that is able to rise above all of this and say, you know, yeah, left, right, stop, you know, stop saying one another's ideas are going to ruin the country. You know, nobody's out to ruin the country. Nobody is out to destroy it. No one's out to destroy American values, any of those things, right? All of that stuff can can change and can become dynamic and, and should become dynamic and should grow and should expand and should be more exclusive, uh, inclusive and, and all of that stuff. Um, we just got to get out of this idea that when somebody doesn't agree, that makes them the enemy and that means they don't want it. And that's the, the trouble of the narratives is that it sets you up, you know, you create a narrative just so the other side says, ah, eh, that doesn't sound right. And you can say, see, they don't want you to have, you know, X, Y, Z. That's what's got to stop. And we got to, you know, just recognize Yes, you got to keep moving forward. We got to keep progressing. We got to, you know, continue to improve upon all of the the basic fundamentals that we want as a country, you know, and and we we just all have to be on the journey together and recognize everybody is going to have a different idea of, on on how to get there and and we just need people that we can turn to who are good at bringing the best of both of those worlds together. Totally, totally. I think that's a great way to um that's a great way to put like your I guess your claim as to why you should be the the president because you you think you can do all that. And with that being said, I think um it's 2:55. I with the time cut out, I don't know how long we've technically been going for. I have to I have to cut a couple yeah, of moments yeah, yeah. out there, but um yeah, I think uh, this is this has gone a good amount of time. I want to ask you, ask everybody, how was your experience on the, on the podcast? How was it? Beautiful, really enjoyed it. I mean, it's great, um, great questions, and you. you know, great conversation. It flows easier now. I feel like I've known you forever. Right, right. That's all. That's what I want people to leave. Like, right. it's because it's only the only way to get the right answers out of people or to get people to really feel comfortable is to make them feel like you know them, you know, don't be, don't be a stranger. You know, I always said, don't be a stranger. No, um, reach out anytime. We can go grab a beer here locally. I love right. That. We are right next door at John Brewer's Tavern. Show off Malden and, you know, I'll show you everything that's great here. And I'm even taking you to the opera. Oh, I'd love to see the opera. I, I got, I got to check out some opera now. You're getting me all like excited about the, how, how I can really like tap into some new things for me. And I love like performance. I love music. I love art. So yeah. Uh, there's definitely some potential there. Uh, I just want to say one more time, thank you so much for coming on. This was this is awesome. This is a little new for me, but I, I was really excited to have you on. Yeah. Everyone I that's around me knows I've been talking about it nonstop. Um, I'll put all the links to the websites uh, in the bio uh, for the opera as well, um, in the in the uh, description for the for the YouTube and everything, and on the Instagram as well. Um, Gene Sticko, 2024. Everyone get your get your votes in, please, because we Voting, need to go. Yeah, go to the website. And I'm still, you know, raising money. I got to raise five grand to get on the uh, National Election Committee or uh, to file for the registry. So that's the first big step is raising that first amount of money. 
that that gets my name in front of all of the other candidates as well and they'll all be like you know so kamala harris will see it and be like who the hell is this guy you know <laughs> yeah I, the real goal out of this podcast is to get you on the joe rogan podcast and and then you can get all the notoriety you need Fantastic. So, uh, That's let's good. see if joe let's see if joe can ever see this that'd be great all um right. but yeah thank you so much for coming on man all right thanks i appreciate all it right. have a good day everybody Bye bye